All right, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Now, we're going to continue our sermon series, Advent sermon series, uh, called Away in a Manger. And this morning, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, or at least we'll, we'll start there. Um, so if you're using one of our Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 1026, 1026. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for all the ways that... We can see how you gave words to prophets to say so that those words in time, in the fullness of time, would be fulfilled in Christ, that we would see the truth of your word in the way that the things that you have said would happen have happened. Father, would you be with us now as we look at uh, several, several places in your word and all these different uh, prophecies? Would you just uh, fill us with the hope that they're designed to give us. Would you, would you work in us and help us to grow and to have a deeper understanding of the finished work of Christ this morning? And would you use this time to shape us and mold us and prepare us to take the good news to our neighbors and to the nations? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our sermon series uh, that, we're, that we've been in now for just a week. And uh, we've got this week and next week, of course, and then Christmas Eve, and we're thinking about Advent, Advent meaning the arrival, the first arrival of Christ, which was foretold, it was predicted. And I was reading and I came across an article in a magazine called The Futurist. Uh, It's an old article, and it was written by a woman named Laura Lee, and she cataloged the worst predictions in the history of the world. So she put together what she thought was the worst predictions in the history of the world. One of them was in 1949, a computer scientist named John von Neumann made a prediction. 1949. This is when computers were about the size of your bedroom. And here was his prediction, and I quote, It would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. Okay? Epic fail, 
right? The, the iPhones or the Android phones in our pocket are uh, testimony to that being one of the worst predictions. Okay, another one. And I, this one bums me out. I really wish, one, wish this one had come true, okay? Uh, in 1959, 10 years before we put a man on the moon, 1959, or which was in 69, but in 1959, Arthur Summerfield was the U.S. Postmaster General under Eisenhower, okay, in charge of the entire post, postal system in the country. And he said in 1959, before man reaches the moon... Your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. Okay? Uh, he said, and I quote, We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. Now, how awesome would that be? Why didn't that one come true? I want rocket mail. That would be fantastic. But think about this. Like, if you, if you think about it, uh, when, when the reason we don't really pay much attention to anything else he said is because he predicted something that, that never had happened. But if, if Arthur Summerfield had said some other things, or if, if, if what he had said came true, if we had rocket mail, then we might be a little more inclined to see what else he said. You know, maybe he also said we'd have rocket lawnmowers or something like that. Who knows? But the point is, because what he said would come true, didn't come true, we don't really pay attention to what he says about anything. But one of the things that's so powerful and compelling about the Bible is it is filled with these predictions, or we call them prophecies, predictions of things that are going to happen and how they're going to happen and where they're going to happen, and they've come true. It's so, so many of these uh, things have been predicted and come true that if, you're, if, if someone's not a believer... At the very least, that is a very compelling reason to keep looking, to keep investigating, to keep studying the scriptures and seeing how all these things uh, were brought to fruition. And for believers, this reality of all these prophecies that were made and then fulfilled in Christ uh, is, a, is a tremendous source of hope. So that's hopefully what we will see this morning as we really look at how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so we're going to do that this morning by looking at a little bit about who this Messiah would be, what he would do, and then why it matters. So if you're making an outline, that's what we'll talk about this morning. Who, what, and why it matters. And normally at this point, I would tell you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to walk through a passage, but we're not doing that this morning. This morning, we're going to be a little more systematic in the way that we're going to look at a whole bunch of stuff. And let me say this. If you normally take notes, there's going to be so much stuff up on these screens. I don't think you're going to be able to write it all down. So maybe just write down some of the main things. And then if you want anything I put on these screens, you just send me an email or send the church an email. I'll get it to you, okay? Uh, but let's talk about the reality that there was this, this person was prophesied. Somebody was going to come. And a lot of times when we think about this, especially when we think about Jesus and how his birth was prophesied, we think of some of the more famous verses like Isaiah 9 where it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And we'll, we'll get there. But if we really want to look at the prophecies of Christ, we've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where in just minutes after the fall, after Adam and Eve were tempted to sin by Satan and then fell into sin, plunging the world into sin and misery, it was just minutes after that that Christ was mentioned for the first time. 
It was in Genesis 3.15 where God said, and speaking actually, he was speaking to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what he was saying there is that Satan would wound this he, but the he, this person, would destroy Satan and his work as well. And this is the first moment when we see a prediction. He is going to come. He will destroy the work of the devil. And as a side note, there's actually, I think, a hint about the virgin birth here in the way that God said that this will be the offspring of the woman. There's a focus on the offspring of the woman. But nonetheless, so so that's the first time we actually see the prediction, the prophecy. It's coming from God, and it's about this he that's going to come and destroy the devil and his work. And then all throughout the Old Testament, you have some narrowing of who it could possibly be. So, for example, in Genesis 12:18, we see that this person will come through the line of Abraham. In Genesis 21:12, then it says that the Messiah will be a descendant of Isaac, ruling out all of Ishmael's descendants. Uh, and then in Genesis 49:10, the Messiah will be a descendant of Judah, or he'll come from the line of Judah. Okay, and therefore also from Jacob, because Jacob was Judah's dad. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a side note on Judah too. Okay, this is my last side note, I promise. But one of the things that's amazing about Jesus coming from the line of Judah, if you know anything about Judah, he's a, he's a bad man. Okay? But he is the first person in Scripture to offer himself as a sacrifice for someone else to save his little brother. So it's very interesting that Jesus then would come from the line of Judah or the tribe of Judah instead of any of the other 11 tribes. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob from the tribe of Judah. And then there's this king thread that's woven in as well. Uh, God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever by me. Your throne shall be established forever. So not only is this person going to come and destroy the work of the devil, but there's also this, this king thread woven in. Isaiah picks up on that as well in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which is a much more famous Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yep, that's where they are. Uh, He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And so you have this building of this king is going to come, this this ultimate king will come. Isaiah also, we've got to back up a little bit and pick up Isaiah 7.14, This is very narrowing, right? This is saying that there's something very unique about this person when he comes. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then, of course, it's also narrowed extremely by the fact that we're given a birthplace. We know where this person will come from. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So this ruler will come from Bethlehem, this tiny little town of Bethlehem, and be a ruler from ancient of days. Think about what we talked about last week, how the Son of God has always existed, always been involved in history, and that ancient of days phrase really is talking about eternity. So there's this eternal ruler that's going to come and be born in little... Oh, little town of Bethlehem. 
And so you've got all these pointers. The Messiah is going to be someone who's going to come and destroy the devil uh, and his work. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, called Emmanuel. <laughs> Sound familiar? Uh, and then, of course, what would happen? There's, there's so many things about that. Uh, that there would also be a person, a forerunner, who will come and announce him. We see that in Malachi, that God would send his messenger. Isaiah adds to that in Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, that this will be a person crying out in the wilderness, pointing to John the Baptist, who would go first, go before Jesus, and, and prepare the way of the Lord. And then there, of course, there's other things in the Old Testament that point to these ultimate positions being fulfilled. Uh, one would be a prophet, an ultimate prophet. In fact, if you're on our reading plan, you were in John 1 on Friday. And as I was reading that, it, was, it struck me again. When they asked John the Baptist if he's the Christ, he says no. And they, they say, are you the prophet? The prophet. And the reason is, even though there were prophets all the way through the Old Testament, they were still waiting for the prophet, this one prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15 would be a prophet like him. And while there are lots of prophets that spoke God's word, there still hadn't been one like Moses yet who would deliver God's people from slavery. And so you have that thread as well. The ultimate prophet is going to come. In Psalm 110, verse 4, there's this prediction of this ultimate priest. God says to someone, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then, of course, we've already talked about it, but another place where we see this prophecy of there being this king, this eternal king, this king with this everlasting dominion and uh, all peoples and nations and languages coming and serving him. As we see that in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Then there's even these little additions like in Zechariah 9, 9, where Zechariah said uh, that the king will come riding in on a donkey. Of course, and then uh, there's a servant thread, this thread of the suffering servant is coming. Someone that would come and suffer on behalf of God's people, paying for their sin. Uh, Isaiah 53, I mean, if you read Isaiah 53 and you don't realize it's in the Old Testament, you just think it's talking about Jesus, and that's because it is. I mean, hear this again. We're familiar with this, but listen. This is Isaiah speaking hundreds of years before Christ would come. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There's even predictions. I didn't put them on there. But there's, there's predictions of uh, certain aspects of this suffering, of this suffering servant. You're familiar with Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's powerful about that is if you read all of Psalm 22, you'll see that in verse 16, Uh, The psalmist said that my hands and my feet are pierced. And in verse 18, he says that they're casting lots for my clothing. And even Isaiah 53, once again, there's really this, uh, not only is there the imagery and the the promise of this atonement, that, that this person would come and pay for our sin, but also that he would see things afterward. Uh, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, verse 10, it says, When his soul has made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And 11, verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So there's even this, these hints of resurrection, that after this, this person comes and is crushed by God for the sins of God's people, he will see. 
So we have, I think, even the resurrection of Christ there. And we, all of this is, you know, it's, it centers us on the gospel. It centers us on the reason that all these things would happen is so that you and I could be forgiven, so that Jesus would come, live the life that we should have lived, but haven't died the death that we deserve to die, but won't because of him. It's amazing that we receive all this through by grace through faith. And the, and the reason that all these things sound like Jesus is because he's the one. He's the fulfillment. He's the one that had been prophesied all through the Old Testament. And so obviously you don't have to write all those down. But, uh, and and here's, what's, here's what's so powerful about this. There's, there's way more than this. This is just, you know, I think there's about 15, 12 to 15 or something up there, prophecies that were given and then fulfilled later, fulfilled in Christ. But scholars say that there's probably closer to 60 that really are clearly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And there's other people that want to take it even higher than that. So this is just a snapshot of all the different ways that in the Old Testament there was all these things pointing to Jesus as this Messiah, as this king, this ultimate prophet, this ultimate, ultimate priest, this ultimate king that would come and this suffering servant. And so you've got to ask yourself, you know, what is the likelihood that all these predictions could be made and then hundreds of years later they come true in one person by chance? What's the probability that all these things could line up in one person just by chance? And actually, somebody did the math on that uh, a, a while ago. A mathematics and statistics professor named Peter Stoner. Uh, he added it up and did the, did the probability for how, how, how possible would it be or how probable would it be that even eight of these things. He narrowed it down to eight of the prophecies and he did the math to see how likely would it be for these things to all be coming true in one person by chance. And the math says this. It's the likelihood of that happening is one in 100,000 trillion. That's not good odds. Um, so one in 100,000 trillion. And so to illustrate that, he said, if you take silver dollars, this was a while ago when we were using silver dollars. But he said, if you were to take silver dollars and put 100,000 trillion of them onto the state of Texas, and in the process, if you took one and marked it with a Sharpie or something and threw it in the mix, that if you put, if you put 100,000 trillion half or silver dollars on the state of Texas, it would cover the state of Texas, every inch of it, and it would be two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars, okay? And what he said is, Imagine the likelihood of you sort of parachuting in from somewhere, reaching in and grabbing one and pulling out uh, the one with the X on it or the one that you marked. Okay? If you think about how likely that would happen, how likely it would be for that to be able to happen, that's the same odds as even eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person by chance. Which just goes to show that when we look in the scriptures and God says to us things like he says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I mean, what that screams to you and I is that what God said would happen, happened, and therefore his word is trustworthy and true. We can trust everything that we see in the scriptures because what he said would happen has happened. 
So why does this matter? Why does this matter so much? Well, number one, like I said before, I think for the non-believer, it really challenges you to uh, not ignore these odds, for you to really look into and investigate this person that all these things line up for. Okay, And so that's the challenge if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, as most of us here are, uh, these prophecies are really designed to give us incredible hope in dark times. Believing that these things came true is very helpful for you and I when we are really wrestling through pain or wrestling through uh, different struggles. I mean, think about this. Think about the, um, the state of affairs in the nation of Israel when Jesus was born. Things were not going well. I mean, historically speaking, you've had uh, over, over the last few hundred years before Jesus was born, you had the Assyrians had wiped out the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians had come and they wiped out the southern kingdom. We talked a little bit about that during our Habakkuk series. Uh, then the Persians came through and wiped out the Babylonians and then Alexander the Great came through and knocked out the Persians. And then eventually there was this uh, ruler over the Jews named Antiochus IV and he was horrible. Uh, scholars really see that he was the worst villain of the Jewish people until Hitler did horrific things to uh, the Jews, had priests beaten because they wouldn't eat pork. Uh, he did really um, incredibly offensive things in the temple just to uh, really, really offend the Jews. He made uh, young Jewish boys undergo reverse circumcision. Okay, so this is a bad, bad person, wicked, evil person. He was so evil and so wicked that actually the Jews rose up and fought against him and had somewhat of a victory. And that's if you have Jewish friends, that's what they're celebrating when they celebrate Hanukkah, okay? that they rose up and they fought against this uh, wicked ruler. But even that victory was, was really short-lived because then it wasn't long after that that the Romans came through and quashed the rebellion and, uh, and installed Herod as king, who was king when Jesus was born. So by the time Jesus is born, Israel is a completely uh, conquered place. Uh, the Israel laid in ruins after the Roman conquest. Uh, in the first century, one, one uh, author says that, the, uh, that Israel was a conquered and cowed nation. You know what cowed means? Cowed means beat into submission. So by the time Jesus arrives, uh, Israel is a conquered and cowed nation. It's a sinister place with a somber past and a fearful future, one author says. I think this, is, this helps us to see why believing the prophecies uh, were, were given and then fulfilled in Christ, why that's so important. It's so important because it was really the hanging on to these promises and these prophecies that these things would happen that, that gave the people of Israel any hope whatsoever. They were able to maintain and not just completely give up because even though things were absolutely horrible for them, they still believed that these things were going to happen. And hanging on to that, that these prophecies, they were crying out to God and and wanting these things to come true. And it's interesting because uh, in 1851, John Neal wrote my favorite Christmas hymn. And he pulled together, here's what he did. He pulled together a number of prophecies from the Old Testament. And uh, he, he strung them together in, in really thinking about the several times in which God's people were completely beaten down, completely helpless, completely weary and tired. And then he put together this song uh, uh, envisioning 
the Israelites crying out to God when Babylon had come and exiled them. And in the first century, you've got these, this imagery of the people of God crying out, saying, we want these things to happen. So, for example, uh, he started it out with these words, draw nigh, draw nigh, Emmanuel. And we know it better as, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Thinking of them uh, in, in captivity, he says that, just imagine them now crying out to God, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And he's acknowledging in that verse of that song that they would be thinking about Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So they're, what's giving them hope through the hardest, darkest of times that, wait a minute, this Emmanuel is going to come. And then in Isaiah 11, verse 1, Isaiah had said, there shall come forth a shoot or a rod from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so there's this imagery of this, this rod of Jesse, this branch shooting out from a stump that would come and bear fruit for the people of Israel. And so John Neal writes the second verse. O come thou rod of Jesse. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. And give them victory o'er the grave. You see it? You see it's this imagery of, of calling out. Believing that these things that were predicted. Will, will come true. And then he even has them pictured in the, in, the, in the New Testament time, in the time when Jesus arrived in, in the first century Israel, where uh, you see in Luke 1, 76 through 79, when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah prophesies about who he's going to be, what he's going to do in his life. Here's what he says, Zechariah prophesying, prophesying about his son, John the Baptist. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise or day spring, as we used to say, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. So Zechariah is crying out there saying that John the Baptist is going to be the one who's going to announce the arrival of this sunrise, this day spring. And so John Neal writes, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. And then a, a final verse he draws from Haggai 2.7 where the Lord says, And I will shake the nations so that the desire of nations shall come. And so he writes, O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. That's us. That's for us. That, that's our verse. Right now, as we are waiting for the second coming, for Jesus to come again, to make all things new and to end all of our pain and to end all of the suffering and to end all of the evil in the world. That's us. O come. Desire of nations. And what's powerful about this is believing in the, in the fulfilled prophecies helps us believe in the not yet fulfilled prophecies. Like in Matthew 24, Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
So we know at the completion of the Great Commission, then he's coming back. In Acts 1, we see the angel said that in the same way that Jesus went up on the clouds, he's going to return on the clouds. These are prophecies. These things are going to happen. He's going to return. And when he does, the beautiful picture that John gives us in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, he says, Then I saw a new heavens and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And because Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of his first coming, no matter what happens, no matter what we go through, no matter what we are going through as individuals or families or as the church of God on this planet, We can cry out to God knowing that since Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of his first coming, he's also going to fulfill the prophecies of his second coming. So think about the chorus. If all these all these pictures in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel of God's people crying out, asking for this one to come. But what's the chorus? Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Emmanuel shall come to you. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. So in the deepest and darkest moments of our lives, cry out for Jesus to come and believe with everything you have that it's true, that we can rejoice. Because Emmanuel will come to us again. To make all things new. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to uh, to believe sometimes. But we thank you that you have shown us in your word. That you have always given us promises, prophecies to cling to. Knowing that the one who came to redeem us. To save us from our sin will also come to save us from even the very presence or influence of sin. Help us to believe deeply, even through the darkest moments of our life, that Emmanuel's coming. That he's coming back to make all things new. And let that enable us to rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.